It is Wednesday, September 15th, uh, 2021. This is a special short video. My name is Caleb Hagan. Obviously, I am missing uh, two things, a camera angle from over there and a co-host. And that's okay. Rob is uh, ill, very ill. And so prayers for him would be appreciated. I actually was going to cancel uh, the show today, but I figured, you know what, it, we're coming into Yom Kippur, and uh, I think that uh, there's a lot on my mind. And I figured that the uh, the good people in the chat room would uh, help push the show. Of course, normally what happens is I I read the chat room while Rob is talking. So I try to multitask, and since obviously I don't have a co-host today, I'm going to have to uh, do some some magic on that. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work. But with all of that said, I figured that we could have some fun. Nonetheless, I did put in the title that this is a short episode. I did that just for my own uh, benefit so that if I decide five minutes in that I'm done, that's going to be it. So um, I do want to thank everyone who's in the chat room. It looks like we have a good showing already in the chat room. A very happy day of atonement to everyone. Coming up tonight at sundown is Yom Kippur, and it is traditionally a day of fasting. Some people may get a full day of fasting, uh, like a complete fast, which means that uh, they don't drink water or any liquids as well. And if you're one of those people, then uh, then good on you, because that's that's difficult. Uh, I've done it many times, and uh, it's never fun to be super dehydrated. Um, with all of that said, uh, before we get started, I should bring up our... Uh, Ways to get a hold of us, you can uh, be a part of this conversation by calling 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. That is a message machine. You're not going to talk to me or Rob. You're just going to talk to a message machine. So you can tell us how much you agree with us, disagree with us, love us, hate us, doesn't matter, whatever. And also you can send us emails if that's uh, your better mode of, of communication. Chegg at torresource.com. C-H-E-G-G at torresource. Dot com. And finally, if you are in the Yom Kippur celebrating mode right now and you need resources for that, you can go to TorahResource.com. We have free resources on Torah Resource for those who would like to download a order of service. We have a booklet for an order of service on Yom Kippur, the Kol Nidre service. Um, that is not a service that I personally am going to be doing uh, today. Uh, we're going to have a, a bit of a different service at our church Um and actually, that's kind of one of the things that I've I've been noticing recently is that uh, we're, you know, as the quote unquote larger tour movement uh, is continuing to grow and continuing to influence those within the church, um, I think that we're seeing a lot of different ways of worship and uh, observance. Some of those are done, obviously, in a Messianic Jewish setting. Uh, where the tradition, the traditions of the synagogue are attempted to be maintained, um, and then there are the other, there's everything in between, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which would be like the church that I attend, which is going to be much more like a Baptist traditional Baptist service. We'll sing some hymns, and uh, we will fast, and uh, we will have a day of retrospection, <clears throat> and a day of talking about repentance. And ultimately, what we do is we find, uh, we find our our repentance, we find our salvation rather, and our atonement, not in the blood of bulls of or goats, but rather in our Messiah Yeshua. And so that's what we will be focusing on this Yom Kippur, as we do every Yom Kippur. Um, and also, if you'd like to, please do me a favor, subscribe and like this video. It actually does help us. Okay. With all of that said. Uh, before we get started, uh, I think something must be said here, and that is a very happy birthday to Sean Fisher. Sean is in the chat room right now. Happy birthday, buddy. I know it's your birthday. You didn't know I knew it, but I know it. Your birthday's on Friday, and uh, Sean is always in the chat room and a, uh, a, a constant supporter of this channel, and so we are uh, grateful to Sean for being alive and for uh, the Almighty for bringing him into this world. Happy birthday, Sean. Okay, without further ado then, we will continue on to a, this is something that I saw this morning and this is actually why I'm doing the show because I saw a meme online today and uh, it was posted by a believing group. 
I'm not going to tell you the group because there's a significant amount of believers out there and ministries out there, believing ministries out there who say this same kind of thing. So um, basically, it says, Yom Kippur, may you be inscribed for life. Okay, now, for those who don't know, uh, traditionally within Judaism, modern Judaism today, one of the things that you would say on Yom Kippur is, may you be inscribed in the book of life, may you be inscribed for life, um, something to that effect. And as I read this uh, this meme from a... Uh, I think a well-known ministry, believing ministry today, it really bothered me. And the reason why is because I don't think that it matters which way you go. I don't think it matters if you hold to an Arminian perspective or whether or not you hold to a free will perspective. I think that we all can get on board with the idea that God is sovereign. Now, I know that there are people who don't agree with that in terms of the idea that God is not sovereign. He doesn't know what's coming. He has a educated guess, but he's not going to uh, he's not going to ordain certain parts of of the world and certain parts of of uh, people's lives to accomplish his will. He basically uh, has thrown everything into a big pot and hopes that it's all going to work out the way that he's predicted in the end. This is called open theism. I obviously don't hold to that. Rob doesn't hold to that. And honestly, if you hold to that, uh, then I would encourage you to <laughs> reconsider. Um, with that said, uh, I don't think that the majority of people who are going to be watching this video are open theists, but rather that uh, even if you uh, even if you hold to a free will model, uh, many of the people who, that I know uh, who hold to a free will model uh, believe that God lives outside of time and therefore he sees everything that is going to happen in time. Whether or not it's our choice or not, let's leave that up for debate. Um, but from a free will model, the way that I always understood things when I held to a free will model, which I do not, by the way, I'm a five-point Calvinist at this point. But um, the point is, is that uh, even when I held to a free will model, I believe that God knew the beginning from the end, as the scriptures clear, clearly state. And therefore, he knew who was going to be saved and who was not going to be saved. Now, this ultimately, once I started to pull on this thread, I started to realize that uh, the idea of someone losing their salvation started to have problems for me. So uh, that that was a, a problem. Uh, and that's ultimately, it, that's not the thing, but that's one of the things that started to bother me enough that I started looking into this debate. And ultimately, I, I changed my view on, on free will. Um, with all of that said, so the idea of may you be written in the book of life, I think that this is a, I think that this is a, a greeting, a term that should be stricken from believers vocabularies. And the reason why is because if we look at the scriptures, I think that the scriptures paint a very different view. Now let's first go to the Torah. Let's go to Exodus 32. We see that there is a idea of a book of life here. Let's just read this, uh, Isaiah 32, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, Exodus 32, verses 30 through 35. It says, the next day, I'm reading out of the ESV, by the way. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord, to yod vav Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, now obviously we're in the golden calf narrative at this point, right? But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, this obviously is going to go to the idea that people can lose their salvation. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a few seconds. But uh, because I think that actually what's going on here is there is an ancient near, and we've talked about this on the show. I've actually read the quote that I'm going to, I'll read this quote again so it can be fresh in everyone's mind. But this idea of being written in a book or not being in a, uh, written in a book, I think is actually kind of the imagery here is important to us because I think that it was a natural part of the ancient Near Eastern mindset. They knew what they were talking about when they said written in the book or not written in the book of life. Anyway, um, let's keep going. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, 
In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Okay, so there's a ton going on here in this text, and uh, we're not going to have time in this video at least to hash it all out. With that said, one of the things that we need to remember about the scriptures in general is that the continued theme throughout the scriptures, basically when we come to every single book, no matter what book it is, uh, we can say there is various themes. Okay, so um, in my intro to the Old Testament class, uh, my my teacher is very good at doing this. He'll start with, okay, what are our, our overarching themes? So in Genesis, one of our overarching themes might be creation, right? It might be the 12 tribes of, of Israel, um, so on and so forth. Exodus, what are the general themes? Salvation, redemption, um, the mighty hand of God, so on and so forth. Okay, so as we look at books of the Bible, we can pick out these themes. What is the one theme that we can see on every single book of the Bible? The answer is God's faithfulness to his covenant. Covenant faithfulness is the overarching theme to every single book, no matter what book it is. And obviously in Exodus, we see this as well. And of course, we see in books like Judges, well, the people don't keep their part of the covenant. And this is actually one of the points of God's faithfulness to his covenant. Even though the people sway, even though the people go astray from the covenant, even though they break their end of the covenant, God never does. And this is why it's an overarching theme. In every single book that we look at, I just preached through Philemon, which is a really small book, you know, and it's uh, when I first read Philemon, I thought, why in the world is this in our canon? And as we as we went through this book, as I studied the book and I wrote on the book, it came full focus why this is in our Bibles. And ultimately, it is the main theme of that book is covenant faithfulness of God. Why? Because you have a slave, a Gentile slave that has now come to faith. And what happens? In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The overarching theme of Philemon is the fact that through Christ, this Gentile slave has now come to faith and is now part of the family of God, right? He is now just as much a citizen as the Jews who uh, would think that he is not a citizen, right? And so Paul hashes this all out uh, in, in a very short amount of time, looking at the fact that this person is now on the same plane as he is in terms of status in the, in the kingdom of God. Um, so now I'm on a huge rabbit trail. But anyway, let's get back to the point of Exodus. Exodus, what is the overarching theme of Exodus? Well, I would say God's faithfulness to the covenant. So as we look at this passage now in Exodus 30, uh, 32, 30 through 35, uh, we see that people are written in a book of life or not written in a book of life. Now, how does Mo- how does Moses already know this? Well, uh, you might remember for those who have um, who have been with us for a couple of weeks, at least maybe a month or two, we will remember that I read this passage out of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this uh, gentleman's last name as the general editor. Uh, his first name's Frank. <laughs> this is published by Sondervan, and uh, it, this one is Hebrews through Revelation. And so uh, remember that I read this passage uh, concerning Revelation 3, verse 5. Uh, This is on bullet point number two. He says, furthermore, the pure relationship to Christ is permanently guaranteed. I will never erase his name from the book of life. In ancient cities, the names of citizens were recorded in a register till their death. Then their names were erased or marked out of the book of the living. This name idea appears in the Old Testament in Exodus 32, 32 through 33. And this is exactly the passage that we just read. Psalm 69, 28 and Isaiah 4, 3. From the idea of being recorded in God's book of the living or the righteous comes the sense of belonging to God's eternal kingdom or possessing eternal life. And we see this in a slew of different passages. He, I'll, I'll give you the first three. He notes Daniel 12, 1, Luke 10, 20 and, five, uh, and Philippians 4, 3. For Christ to say that he will never blot out or erase the overcomer's name from the book of life is the strongest affirmation that death can never separate us from Christ and his life. 
And he cites Romans 8, 38 through 39. A person enrolled in the book of life by faith remains in, in it by faithfulness and can be erased only by disloyalty. There is some evidence that a person's name could be removed from the city register for, before death if he were convicted of a crime. In the first century, Christians who were loyal to Christ were under constant threat of being branded political and social rebels and then stripped of their citizenship. But Christ offers them an eternal, safe citizenship in his everlasting kingdom if they only remain loyal to him. So, ultimately, the point is is that um, we have this idea that the ancient Near East people had an idea of what being written in the book of life meant. It meant citizenship in the family and the kingdom of God. And once again, this goes back to the overarching theme of God's faithfulness to the covenant. And the reason why is because ultimately what we are striving for is covenant relationship with God. We have entered into covenant relationship through Christ into God's kingdom. And we are now fellow heirs and we are citizens. This is what Paul tells us. We are citizens. And so the notion that we could be taken out of the book of life also has its problems. Or that we would say to someone, may your name be written in the book of life. And for this, let's let's now go to Ephesians 1. Everyone knows this passage. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How are we holy and blameless before the living God? Well, the only way that we're holy and blameless before the living God is through coming into the covenant, through the shed blood of the Messiah, right? Only through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension are we made right. And so ultimately, the point here is, is that those people who were against God, who he says he's not, he's going to blot out of the name, out of the book of life, what is he saying? They don't have citizenship. They don't have, they they haven't understood. They haven't gotten it. They're not living their life the way that they should because they don't truly have the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians, right? He talks about the fact that a veil laid over the Torah. So every time that they read it, they couldn't see the rock that followed them, which was Christ, right? I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but uh, basically they couldn't see Christ. So every time that they read the Old Covenant, it's the only place in the Apostolic Scriptures that we have the term Old Covenant. Every time they read the Old Covenant, what happened? They didn't see Christ. And so Moses, he uses it. He's doing this great, what what is called a midrash. He's doing this great, he's taking a, a passage and he's expounding on it to make his point. And the point that he's trying to make is those people didn't see Christ because they weren't really covenant members. And ultimately, this is what we see in this in this Exodus 32 passage, that they were actually blotted. They were going to be blotted out of the, the, the book. They weren't going to be let in. Why? Because they didn't truly have the blood of Christ. They didn't see that the Torah, that the Passover was actually pointing to the death of the Messiah. They didn't see that the seed that was going to come from the woman in, in, in Genesis 3 was going to be fulfilled not only through Abraham, but was going to deal with sin and that they could claim that. And because of that, they were going to be able to get into a covenant relationship with God. So let's keep going here with the Ephesians passage. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There it is, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I am not exactly sure what is going on in the chat room. There's a lot scrolling up here. I'm going to guess that there is a huge debate raging against free will versus uh, predestination or, or the doctrines of grace. That's my guess. I don't know. I haven't read it. But ultimately, this is not a, this is not a debate about free will, and it's not a debate about whether or not the doctrines of grace are, are true or not. Yes, I mean, that could be part of the debate if we wanted it to be, but that's not actually what I'm getting at here. And the reason why is because if we believe that God lives outside of time and he knows who is already in the book of life at the end time, then it doesn't matter. The book of life has already been determined. Whoever's in and out has already been determined. Those who believe that you can lose your salvation, okay, I understand that there's there's a there's another piece to the puzzle there. But ultimately, the fact is, is that the book of life has been determined. Who is in and who is out of the book of life has been determined. And I know I'm going to get pushback from the Arminian 
uh, leaning people and those who believe in a free will model. Fair enough. I understand that you're going to push back against that. That's fine. You can push all you want. All I'm saying is, is that ultimately, I don't think that you can split hairs like that. If God sees who's who's in and out at the end, then that has already been predetermined. Listen to what happens, though, in uh, in some other scriptures. In Luke t- uh, 10, 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names <clears throat> what might be written in the book of life if you continue on in the right path. No. That you might be written in the book of life? No. That you have a choice to make whether or not you're going to be written in the book of life at the end times? No, of course not. But rejoice that your names are written in the in the heavens. <clears throat> that they're written basically in the book of life, right? Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So their names are in the book of life. Basically, the point here is that we don't have to guess. We don't, you know, there are, there are teachers out there who will say that uh, we don't know if we're saved or not. And I, I totally disagree with this. One of the things that we can look at on Yom Kippur is the fact that we are written in the book of life, that we have assurance, we have assurance in Christ that we are in. One of the things that I get asked the most or one of the things that people say to me the most is, I don't know if I'm truly saved. And I think that this is a tool of Satan. Even people that I know who are who hold to the doctrines of grace, what they'll say is, I believe that God chooses the elect. I just don't believe I'm one of them. Now, I used to say this when I had backslidden and was not walking with the Lord. That's exactly what I said. I said, well, I know that there's a God. I know that he sent Jesus and I know that Jesus saved the elect. However, I don't believe I'm one of the elect. And so the point here is that this is a tool. This is a tool of the evil one to to pull us away, to pull us away from the truth of the scriptures. And what is the truth of the scriptures? That we have assurance in Christ, that the blood of the lamb has been spilled and has paid the price for our sin. This is the point. This is the foundation that we rest on. And why do we rest on this foundation? Because from the very beginning pages of the scriptures, from the very beginning of Genesis 1, all the way through to the last chapter of Revelation, this is the truth that the scriptures preach and teach, that God has chosen the elect, that he has paid the price for the elect, and that if you have faith, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Yeshua is the Messiah, you will be saved. So this is the point. The point here is that we have assurance. And now, what is it then that believers should fast for? I've had many debates with people over whether or not believers should fast on Yom Kippur. I think that fasting is always a good practice. And the reason why is because it reminds us that we are not in control, that we are, that we think that we have food all the time and are able just to uh, satisfy our hunger whenever we want. But ultimately, it comes from God. The other thing is, is that it, it intensifies what it is we are attempting to accomplish. And in this case, on Yom Kippur, it is repentance. Coming back to God, humbling ourselves, and attempting to uh, to ultimately claim Christ and His blood on our behalf should take extreme reverence, and that is done through fasting, prayer, and fasting. And so, I do think it is a good practice to pray, to pray and fast on Yom Kippur. Uh, my eight-year-old son fasts on on Yom Kippur. He fasted last year when he was seven. He's going to do it again this year. And so um, I think that obviously there are exceptions. My wife is pregnant this year. She's not going to be fasting um, and uh, so on and so forth. With all of that said, um, I think that we as believers can view the, the, the festival of Yom Kippur uh, in a totally different light. The idea that we should say to other people may be written in the book of life. I don't think that we should do this as believers. I think that we should say congratulations for being written in the book of life. In other words, we should assume a person's faith, their proclamation of the Messiah and his blood on their behalf. We should assume that that is genuine. We can't see the heart, only God can. And therefore, to say, may you be written in the book of life, I think is actually missing the mark. Okay, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's move to the comment section and see what has been going on. Uh, so I see Augustinian... 
never read Calvin one day of my life. Neither have I read Augustine. I've only read the Bible. Nice, Sean. Uh, Revelation 3, 5. That's where I was reading out of. Me too, my friend. Okay. Um, you will be saved. Yep. Only if you are elect. So, I, yeah, once again, I think that obviously what's going on in the chat room is exactly what I thought it was, a debate over, and of course, Brandon is in the chat room, so he's always going to um, turn every conversation into a uh, Calvinist versus uh, Doctrines of Grace conversation, um, and which is fine. I just think that there's other matters of, of uh, ultimately, one of the reasons that I think that the, I think that people have gotten uh, a little bit frustrated with Rob and me talking about the doctrines of grace so much. And one of the reasons why is because there's so much more to theology. I agree with that. I don't think that the doctrines of grace versus the free will model is the end all be all uh, conversation that needs to be had. I think that uh, if there's something new to bring to the table, I think that that's great. But ultimately, uh, what I hear is just a lot of the same old arguments. It's from both sides, not just from a Arminian or free will perspective, which I used to hold to, but rather from both sides of the aisle. In other words, if you go to Revelation 3, 5 and you say, aha, see, look, you can be blotted out of the book of life. Okay, well, you know what? I know the arguments on both sides of this. So, I mean, unless there's something new that's going to be brought to the table, unless there's some new perspective that's going to be brought I don't really see the benefit of trying to just go over the same old arguments over and over and over and over again. And ultimately, I think that that's a lot of what happens in our conversations about this issue. Now, I, people might push against that and say, well, then why would we have any biblical conversations? I understand. I understand that argument as well. But ultimately, uh, you know, for people who have spent a significant amount of time, a specific, like a a very long amount of time uh, studying things like Augustine or Calvin, Arminius, Wesleyan theology. Um, there are full uh, panel discussions and whatnot every year at ETS and SBL on these issues. Um, so, um, I mean, someone who has really spent a lot of time in this knows the general arguments. And so, I mean, sure, it's good to revisit them every once in a while, but to revisit them every week, come on. Okay. Um, fasting is amazing. I agree. Actually, there is a great book by John Piper called Hunger for God. It was one of the books that really, really influenced my understanding of, of praying and fasting. Um, I, I think it's probably the best book I've ever read on fasting. I don't agree with Dr. Piper on everything, but on this one, I think he hit the nail on the head. Uh, and I see that uh, whether or not you agree with Piper on other theological matters, um, ultimately, I think that the truth of the matter is, is that Piper lives a life uh, that he believes is in step with with the Bible and with his th theological understanding. And for that, I, I believe that he is a righteous man in the eyes of God because he has uh, he has the blood of Christ that has covered him. And now he's walking in accordance to the covenant as best he sees. Question, how does uh, Toral... Total depravity. Explain those who believe that they are saved, are trying to serve Jesus, but are in churches that teach modalism or other heresies. Yeah, this is a difficult one. And the reason why is because obviously Torah Resource and Messiah Matters has um, been closely involved with the Messianic movement. Uh, at the time I'm making this video, I believe that, um, that most... <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I believe that most Messianic and or Hebrew Roots congregations have a blatant heresy usually attached to them in one way, shape, or form. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I've talked so so strongly against the Hebrew Roots movement is because I think that um, the Hebrew Roots movement has tried to make us versus them in Christianity. I don't think that this is what God wants. In fact, I think that if we want to reform the church, we have to be part of the church. We can't say we're other than the church. Now let's go reform the church. Um, because of that, when you look at the Hebrew Roots Movement and the Messianic Movement, the congregations that predominantly are within these movements usually have not like small little heresies here or there. They usually have blatant, in-your-face, like straight-up heresy. And we're talking about things like a adding or subtracting from the biblical canon. We're talking about a, a rejection of the Trinity doctrine or a flat-out denial of, of Christ's deity. We're talking about all sorts of, I mean, like legitimately 
heretical things. And so um, I think that for me personally, if I was in a place and, uh, you know, I get a lot of calls from people who say we're in X town or we're in X city and there are no good congregations around us. And if, uh, I don't know how often that is true or not, because usually there are Bible believing churches around people. Um, but there's an idea of if somebody disagrees on certain issues, I'm not going to be with them. Now the foundational issues I completely agree with, but if I had the choice of a Methodist church, which rejects the doctrines of grace versus no church at all, I would be in the Methodist church. Um, and I mean, most Lutherans today, almost all Lutherans predominantly reject the doctrines of grace. Um, I think that there are some problems with the Lutheran church in terms of their idea of priest and things like that. Once we get into the idea of priests, a priesthood and the idea of a false priesthood, like a, a congregation employing a false priesthood, now we might be stepping over heretical lines too far. I don't think that I would I would uh, attend a place that had a false priesthood. Um, anyway, uh, with that said, if you look at non-denominational Christian churches, Baptist churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, so on and so forth, what you have is you have uh, a general belief, sometimes Methodist as well, sometimes against the doctrines of grace, sometimes for the doctrines of grace, that would not be my main, that would not be my hill to die on. I would personally, um, I, I am fortunate. I shouldn't say fortunate. I'm blessed by the almighty to be in a, in a city that is extremely liberal, like overly liberal, but has an unbelievable amount of Bible believing churches. There are good Christians here that love the Lord deeply that have, uh, that teach the word expositorily and, uh, that truly build each other up in Christ. I mean, I have quite a, a large range of churches to, to choose from. Um, and I don't agree with them on everything, but I would certainly be able to be a member of their church if they would let me and, uh, and be very happy. So, okay, let's go back to, so let, maybe I didn't, Maybe I didn't even touch on the question that was asked. Sean asked the question, how does total depravity explain those who believe that they are saved, are trying to serve Jesus, but are in churches that teach modalism or other heresies? Yeah, this is this is a, a difficult one. And I think the reason why is because I think that there are believers in heretical communities. And so I've said before on this on this channel that I believe that there are Catholics that are genuinely saved. And the reason why is because even though they may affirm some form of a works-based salvation, I think that they don't know any better. What they've been taught is what they've been taught and what they, uh, and, but ultimately what they're trying to do is just love God as best they can. They, they want to have a true relationship with Jesus. That's what they want to do. And they are living their life the best that they possibly can just to serve Christ because they have faith in him because they have made Christ their master, not because they're trying to, not because they think that they can save themselves through works. Um, I think that possibly could be the case with uh, very other heretical movements like Mormonism um, or whatnot. Now, obviously, once we get into the idea that, the, and I think the ignorance has to play a role in there. In other words, not ignorance about, uh, not necessarily full ignorance, but just the idea of, I don't really understand all of the Mormon church's doctrine, but what I know is that they believe in Jesus and they love the family. And therefore I, I you know, that's the church I go to. Once you get into the idea that Jesus, that Jesus was just a man or God the Father was just a man on a different world and attained perfection, now we're moving into some major, major issues. Um, ultimately, I'm very blessed to say that I don't have to deal with that because um, I don't judge. <laughs> it's not my place to judge these people. I think that there are people who are in congregations that where the congregations are heretical, uh, even in some of their core doctrines, but the people in the pews are... Uh, either going there to try to minister to those people and or are there because they love Christ and they love God and what they're trying to do is is serve him to the best of their ability. And for that, I don't know. That's up to God, not me. Okay, interesting. I will look that, uh, okay. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to define the doctrines of grace. 
The doctrines of grace are the five points of Calvinism, just with a different name. Calvin did not come up with the five points of Calvinism, by the way. Uh, so the idea that the five points of Calvinism are Calvin's idea, he didn't come up with those. Uh, that was a, that was a, it was a, a synod that came up with those. So, uh, a lot of the times people will say, well, are you a Calvinist? One of the reasons that I like using the word doctrines of grace as opposed to Calvinist is because Calvin believed things that I don't believe. Now, usually what people mean by the, uh, by the idea of, <clears throat> are you a Calvinist is, do you believe in the five points of Calvinism? That's usually what people mean by, are you a Calvinist? My answer to that is, uh, yeah, I am a five point Calvinist in, in that respect. But since I don't believe that, uh, everything that Calvin believed and taught, I don't know if attaching my, my name and you know, there are good people who are free will believers who, uh, who I know who say, I don't like being called Arminian. I'm not because I don't follow Arminius. That's a fair point. And so this is why I try as often as possible to use the term free will model or free will belief or free will versus doctrines of grace, okay, or a predestination model. Sanctification also takes time growing every day and learning. Christina, this is a great point. Um, I think that we all come from somewhere. One of the things that I think the Torah movement as a whole has done is, as we've seen over the past 20 years, it was, it used to be that if you believed you know, you would go to a church and there would usually be a ministry that was that was forming where people wanted to celebrate the Sabbath and the festivals or they wanted to learn about them. Or you'd go to a church and there would be a couple of people who really liked, you know, the music of Lamb or whatever. And, and uh, they would invite that group to come play music and they were part of the church. And that has moved now to where we are in 2021 where basically anyone who believes in Torah is in a group totally separate from the church uses terms like when I left the church or uh, in the church they believe or so on and so forth. So it, they've, there's been this huge split between us and them. And I, I totally reject this. I am a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. And I believe that the church continues to reform. I believe that we're in the Third Reformation, if you consider the Second Reformation a Reformation. I believe that we're in the Third Reformation, and I believe that the church needs to reform. I don't believe that there needs to be something separate than the church. The, the term Christian is used in the scriptures, and so I am happy to take a term that is used and label and labels believers in, in the Messiah as such. I'm happy to do that. There are many people who are not. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, why are we talking about this? I want to know more about atonement. Okay, uh, well... I mean, this is the general doctrine of the uh, of the gospel, right? That uh, there needed to be a price made for a price paid for sin. In other words, there is a consequence for sin, and that consequence is to be out of covenant relationship with with God. So, what is atonement? Ultimately, you know, if we go back to the themes of the Bible, if we look at Genesis, what is the what's the overall purpose of Genesis? I think the overall purpose of Genesis is to show the fall and then to highlight and to explain the Abrahamic covenant, which is that the seed would deal with sin. In other words, it sets up the entire message of the world, the entire message of what's going to happen in the gospel. Um, and so the idea that the idea that atonement needed to be made now comes into we it's interesting how the Torah starts to it starts to almost domino it it focuses in so you have this wide view right when we start in Genesis you have this wide view of of oh no sin happens okay the fall happens then in Genesis 3 uh, we see that there's this promise actually the promise isn't given to the woman is it the promise is given to the serpent so and I've said already that my teacher in Old Testament has has stated that this was a declaration of war. I love this. I love the I love the idea that God declares war against sin and death. Um, anyway, okay, so so this is the Abrahamic covenant. He focuses in on the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, the in Genesis three is the seed of the woman, focused in on the promise, which uh, comes in Genesis twelve, Genesis fifteen, Genesis eighteen, Genesis twenty two. And Genesis 28, I believe. So all of those five times, I believe it is, we have in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the gospel message. This is it. And we see this in Galatians 3.8. 
So from there, all of a sudden, where does it end? It ends with the the 12 tribes being established. In other words, the seed is going to come through these 12 tribes. And we see the establishment of, of Israel, as a, not as a nation yet, but as the 12 tribes. And they get into Egypt. Okay, so now we focus in in Exodus. Exodus now describes and sets up how this blessing that is going to come to all the nations through the seed actually works. How is it going to bless all the nations? How is the seed going to bless all the nations? Well, we see this in the Exodus narrative. God is mighty. God is faithful to his covenant. God brings away. God redeems his people. What is so interesting about redemption in 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 Exodus is that ultimately we see this also in the Day of Atonement. So you have these two different times. Another thing that's really interesting is that in in Exodus, you have the freeing of the people of Israel from an oppressive master, right? But the problem is, is it's not a problem. The thing is, is that in in Yom Teruah, in Rosh Hashanah, that is when the, the slaves are freed. Well, why didn't God make it on Passover? Why isn't the you know, why isn't the Jubilee year and the Yovel year, why aren't those, why don't they start at Passover? They don't. They start at Yom Teruah. They start at Rosh Hashanah. And so this is, this is really interesting that we have kind of this doubling up. Anyway, the idea of atonement, the idea of substitutionary atonement comes when the lamb is slaughtered and the blood is put above, above the doorpost. Now, this ultimately shows what happened on earth right? That it's a prophecy of what would happen on earth. Christ comes to earth. He dies on the cross. He sheds his blood. He is the substitutionary atonement to pay the sin that will get us back into covenant relationship with God. Of course, this doesn't work without a resurrection. The resurrection happens. It proves that he is who he said he was. And then what happens? Ultimately, 40 days later, he ascends now we get into the celebration of Yom Kippur. In other words, yes, there is something that happens on earth, which is the priest goes into the, well, there's, we can start here in a, a little bit. We can pull back a little bit. Um, but the idea of the, the, there's two, there's two goats, right? We'll talk about that in, a, in just a second. Ultimately, the, the high priest goes in, he puts the blood of the goat on the Ark of the Covenant and this is the only time of the year that he goes into the Ark of the Covenant. What is this to do? Is this to redeem the priest himself? Ultimately, no. It is to make atonement for the nation of Israel. It is a corporate atonement. In other words, we as a nation have sinned. But this ultimately is also a, this is a symbol of what Christ would do and now has done when he ascends into heaven, he goes into the inner chamber, right? Of the Holy of Holies of the heavenly temple. And what does he present? He presents his own blood. And then he sits down at the right hand of the father. So when can a priest sit down in the temple? Never. You're never allowed to sit down in the temple. There's no chairs in the temple. Why? Because you don't sit down in the temple. So why does Christ sit down at the right hand of the father? Because his work is done in a sense. He continues to make intercession for us. So now the work of the blood and his sacrifice is done. Now what he does in terms of working for us is pray for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So remember that our Messiah is praying for us and that the blood has already been presented in the Holy of Holies. So I think that the Yom Kippur celebration is actually a looking back now of what happened in time when Christ ascends to the Holy of Holies of the heavenly temple and presents his blood to the, to the Father. It is accepted, right? And this is why he's allowed to sit down. Okay. Um, what about the scapegoat? I think I saw that. Explain the scapegoat. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one. This is a difficult one too. So for those who are Bible savvy, you'll remember that there's actually two goats involved at Yom Kippur, right? There's the, the goat that is called the scapegoat. I'm not positive. Was it Tyndale who came up with that? Maybe somebody can Google that for me. Anyway, um, the term scape, scapegoat, I forget who first uh, who first came up with that. Anyway, the point is, is that the priest comes and he lays his hands on the head of the scapegoat and he puts the sin of the people onto that goat. Okay, then what happens? Well, then he 
he they released that goat into the wilderness. There is a ton of debate on what this what this represents. Some people believe that it is uh, it is a goat given over to a uh, a desert demon, Bezalel, Bezalel. Anyway, I forget that. I'm not looking at a text, so forgive me. Anyway, um, and so they they think that the the goat is given over to this uh, desert demon. I, I I'm not convinced by that. I know that a lot of a lot of scholars believe that it's supposed to represent Satan, and basically the sins of the people are given to Satan. Uh, in other words, he's he's the god of he's the god of this world, quote unquote. He's the he he his dominion is this world. But then uh, the goat that is sacrificed, that blood gets taken into the holy of holies and into the heavenly temple, and the people of God are in basically uh, forgiven in that realm. I mean, I understand how that could be uh, some imagery. I think that the imagery is that ultimately I think that both goats represent Christ. So the scapegoat, our sins were placed on on Yeshua, right? Isaiah 53 describes this in ad nauseum, right? Uh, it's it's pretty clear that for you know because of his wounds we are we are healed his stripes so on and so forth so all of this to say that the scapegoat represents Christ our sins are placed onto the scapegoat and where is he taken outside the camp just as Christ was taken outside the camp right taken outside the the camp and crucified left for left for dead essentially left to to basically bear our sin. And so, it, I mean, there's all sorts of stories in the rabbinical literature about how the goat used to wander back into the <laughs> into the camp. So the person who was actually releasing the sca- scapegoat would, would lead them off a cliff so that they wouldn't come back in. Because what kind of a what kind of a representation is it when the when the uh, when the goat walks back into the camp that has all of Israel's sin on it? Actually, and that has to be the Lord, right? Was the Lord telling Israel at that point, like, hey, sh- shape up your sin still on your head? I, I mean, it's very possible. I think that e- ever since. There's been, and I've talked about this recently. There's been shining examples throughout Israel's history. I was I was reading in uh, in Kings and, and Chronicles this morning about Josiah and how he, at eight years old, he becomes king and then he rules for thirty, uh, what is it, thirty uh, thirty one years. And and during that time, he tears down all the high places. So I mean, there are times in Israel's history where there is some shining light. King David, uh, King Solomon, so on and so forth. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, the point is, is that Israel has been wayward and has rejected Christ pretty much from the from the day that they came out of of Egypt. Right. I mean, the golden calf starts pretty early and Israel is constantly wandering away. Now, obviously, obviously, there is always a remnant. And, and uh, Paul talks about this. Um, and so anyway, now we're now we're off in the weeds. But. So you have the scapegoat, which represents Christ being led out in, uh, outside of the of Israel, uh, outside of the city, and being crucified, taking on our sin, even though he didn't do any of it, right? So he takes on our sin, just as the the goat is taken outside of the camp. That goat didn't really do anything except for get selected, right? Um, at, it, randomly, quote unquote, randomly selected. Okay, so then the other goat, I think, is somewhat obvious. That second goat is crucified. The blood is taken. This can be seen within the Passover narrative as well, right? The lamb is taken. The lamb's blood is put above the doorpost. In this case, the goat's blood is taken. The goat's blood is taken into the Holy of Holies, which is the footstool of the Almighty God who dwells among us. And that blood is then presented and put on the footstool, the Ark of the Covenant, and presented basically to say uh, this covers the sins of the nation. And ultimately... When Christ goes into the into the holy of holies of the heavenly temple, what happens? He presents his blood for the individuals, not for the nation per se, but for the individuals. Now, obviously, Paul Paul talks about a time, uh, you know, when all Israel will be saved. I think that this means that as a nation they will come to Christ. But the point here is that uh, you have two different things: you have as a nation being saved or atoning for through the blood of the goat on the, you know, on the Ark of the Covenant, whereas uh, in the Holy of Holies, Christ brings his blood for the individual. And we know this because the Holy Spirit indwells individuals and not the nation. Okay, um, let's see here. There's a lot going 
yeah, Azazel is the name of the goat. Thank you, Betazel. Yeah, I think people are, yes, people are trying to figure it out as well. Okay, um, why do we see Christ in Revelation moving in the sanctuary? Uh, I would need more specifics of a text on that. The Talmud says that Azazel was a rock cliff where the goat was thrown down. Yeah, that's true. Um, how can we contact you in order to for you to host a debate with Pastor Rudolph Bushoff on the incarnation? Uh, I don't know why I would do that. I don't know who that is. Um, but if you want me to host something, I mean, you can always... How would you contact me? Well... Let me uh, let me tell you how you can contact me. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. You can also email me, chagatorresource.com, chagatorresource.com. Okay, uh, question, why are you wearing headphones? Are you listening to hymns of metal music or perhaps bass solos slap it a bass uh no i'm wearing headphones good question i'm wearing headphones initially because of intros outros and because of the way that i use my soundboard so i wouldn't have been able to hear that music unless i had headphones on or i wouldn't oh here let's take this down and i wouldn't be able to hear my intro and outro music i know it sounds stupid but to be honest with you especially in a place where uh there are other people Outside of my door, I have headphones on all day because it actually keeps me keeps me enclosed. Okay, what are your thoughts on the COVID vaccine? Okay, and that's our cue to take off. All right, guys, I think it's been a good show. Uh, I hope it's been a good show. It's always different when it's just one-on-one. I, I really do hope that uh, you, if you are celebrating Yom Kippur tonight, if that is something that you and your con- and or your congregation do together, I hope that ultimately that uh, you'll have a blessed time uh, tonight and tomorrow. Uh, if you're fasting, I pray that your fast will be easy and light. And uh, yeah, I hope that ultimately you can focus in on the atonement that we have through Christ and the assurance that we have in Christ, the assurance that we are part of the elect, that we are ri- that we are written in the book of life, not that we might be written in the book of life, but that we have assurance through the blood of Christ. Uh, Please pray for Rob. He needs it. He is very sick right now. I hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify my great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. 